gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm talking to you from the Elio Hotel or Hotel Elio. I'm not sure whether it's H-E or E-H. Um, and I did a event yesterday for the for AI. Um, it's academics program, academic programs thing, um, which is a really, really great enterprise run out of AI. If kids out there are interested, they should go Google it. Um, Summer Honors program is great. Lots of other stuff, a lot of campus programs. They did a thing partnered with the Hamilton Center at the University of Florida, which um, I have no, there's no compensation here. There's no sponsorship thing here. It's being spearheaded by this guy, uh, Will Inboden, um, used to be at uh, UT, um, hugely respected guy in my world. The model is sort of like what Robbie George has done at uh, Princeton. And so far, I guess I got to say it's really, really, really impressive. And if I had a kid in high school um, who would be going to college in the next couple of years, uh, I would look hard at um, what they're doing at the University of Florida, particularly if I lived in Florida because in-state tuition at the University of Florida is really affordable. But it's a really impressive school. Spent a day on the campus. I have a friend who works for Ben Sass, who's also a friend, uh, who's the president of the university, tooled around on his golf cart yesterday all over campus. And um, so I'm pretty high on the whole thing. We can talk about it more. Um, but uh, there, it's not some, you know, miniature, you know, Liberty University kind of thing. Um, it's like strictly... Um, on the merits, non-ideological, actually teach the elements of the liberal arts in a serious and committed way, not partisan or anything like that, sort of getting back to what most people think college is supposed to be about. And um, I think it's a really encouraging sign of what they're doing. So um, I'm not going to get deeper into it. We can At some point when I get Sass on here, who I didn't get to see while I was here because he's uh, allegedly at the Munich Security Conference because he's so fancy. I'll talk about all that more with him when next time I get him on here or maybe I'll get Inboden on here because I really like the guy. And I did a panel with this guy, Jeffrey Collins, very impressive guy who's a specialist on the history of liberalism. He's an intellectual historian, and I'm going to ha definitely have him on the podcast if he's willing in the near future because I have um, brain pickage stuff I want to do with him. Um, all right, enough of all that. Um, I have a drop dead out on this thing because I have a phone call. If I'm rambling, it's because uh, it's been a crazy 10 days or so, and I got to get to the airport to get home to see my animals, which I am very excited to see, um, or who I am very, whom? I'm very excited to see my animals. We will do the grammar later. We should probably start with the horrific news this morning that um, Alexei Navalny is dead. I think that, I think he's dead, right? Um, so that, even though at this time in the morning, uh, they haven't, news, Western news outlets haven't officially confirmed it, but, you know, the Russian news agency said it, very unlikely that it's not true, um, just given that it makes no sense for them to lie about it. His lawyers were on the way to confirm it, but let's just assume it's true. 
I think um, this is actually much bigger news than probably a lot of people in America kind of realize. Um, I listened to Peter Baker. Oh, geez, I thought I saw, I thought I saw a rat. <laughs> it was just this sleeve from a coffee cup moving in my peripheral vision and freaked me out. Look, cows. Anyway, uh, where was I? I was listening to Peter Baker, who I like a lot as a reporter and as a writer, and I guess I should have him on the podcast at some point, too. He used to be stationed in Moscow for the New York Times, and he was making the case that, um, which I've seen elsewhere on Twitter and, and, and The Wires, that no one is going to be, uh, the phrasing like, no one's going to be convinced that the official story that he just went out for a walk and collapsed on his own is true. Navalny was in court like yesterday, the day before, and he looked gaunt and bad, but he didn't look like he was about to die. So the assumption is, is that Putin killed him. I don't know. Uh, like, uh, it would be worse if it would be a bigger deal if Putin straight up had him executed. But it's important. Uh, the only reason I bring up the Peter Baker thing is what bothered me about it is and I don't think he would disagree, but the insinuation that if he, if Navalny did actually just collapse from a heart attack and die, um, which all things being equal, I actually find kind of plausible. I'm not saying it's likely, I'm not saying it's true, but um, if Navalny did, it doesn't let Putin off the hook for killing him because, you know, Navalny was poisoned by the by the by Putin with what is it Novichuk you know a few years ago which really messed the guy up put him in a hospital for I don't know how many months messed up his system you know really damaged the guy and then he's been putting him in you know isolated um, solitary confinement for I don't know how long now a year two years um, and now you know a couple of weeks ago they put him in a notorious labor camp and. So the idea that somehow, and all for trumped up charges, all for nonsense, it's a criminally corrupt regime. And so, like, it's utterly foreseeable that you put people through all of that, um, including an earlier attempted murder uh, with a horrible, you know, chemical weapon. You're not off the hook because you didn't put a bullet in the guy's head or you didn't order a bullet be put in his head because... If he didn't belong in prison or didn't deserve to be poisoned in the first place, then, you know, the health problems that ensue from all of that are still on your moral ledger. And one way to think about it is if he if the cover story is true that he collapsed while walking, the way to think about it is Putin tortured him to death. Uh, maybe not with sort of conventional Hollywood torture, but prolonged, protracted torture. But the reason why I think it would be a bigger deal if he ordered him executed is because it would reveal the extent to which Putin thinks he is winning, thinks he is winning the PR game globally, thinks he is winning the Ukraine war, thinks he is winning uh, the battle for hearts and minds in the United States. And it's given him a sense of confidence that he needs to do this now. Um, I suppose... I'm open to the counter argument, which is it shows he's scared because there's this election coming in. They just banned um, a candidate who had no chance of ever winning from running in the election. And maybe he's seeing things on the ground that make him think he's got to consolidate support even more, at least send terror into his dom potential domestic opponents. That's always possible. But either way, it would speak to 
Putin's contemporary in the moment state of mind if he had him executed in a way that if his if Navalny's heart just gave out would speak to the morality or immorality of Putin but not necessarily the sort of wouldn't have the geostrategic implications that uh ordering his execution his murder you know on Friday morning or Thursday night whenever it was uh would if I hope that makes sense so let's stay on Russia for a little bit. Uh, I know there's a lot of other stuff to talk about, uh, if I can remember what it is as the coffee starts to kick in. So, you know, on my vacation, um, I vacationed uh, among, with, among other people, uh, my friend Ron Bailey and his wife. I hope it's okay that I've revealed that. Um, Ron's a dear friend of the last 25 years. He's a science correspondent for Reason Magazine, among other things, and brilliant guy and uh, passionate very informed, uh, exceedingly literate libertarian. I've learned an immense amount from Ron and um, consumed a large amount of brown liquor with Ron as well. Anyway, uh, including on this trip. Anyway, uh, where was I? So I was making the case that I've made on here a few times, um, talked to Daniel Hanan about it. Uh, the time before last, uh, he was on The Remnant, making the case that uh, Russia's just a bad country. And I don't mean that Russian people are automatically bad people. I'm not into that sort of essentialism kind of thing. I'm not saying that there's nothing good about Russia. But as I've, I think I've talked about a few times on here before, I think Russia never actually ent fully entered modernity uh, or the Enlightenment, you know, certainly not the West, the way that other um, European countries did. And I know in part, Russia is not entirely European anyway. My basic broad brushstrokes argument about it is that compare Russia to England. Russia in many ways is kind of like the anti-England. You know, there's a reason why, again, I know some people think it started in Holland, but basically there's a reason why um, liberalism is, is born or appears so early in England. And it has to do with a lot of different things. It's, it's just a weird people, um, quirky people, but also, you know, between England and Denmark, you can make the case that they're certainly in Europe, they're the first actual nation states. But in England, you never had a very strong king. You had competing centers of power. And in those competing centers of power, the, you know, the local Duke or Earl, I never know what's like, who's like, I should really learn my hierarchy of royalty. Like, is it, do go King, Earl, Duke? Does it go King, Duke, Earl? I mean, I, I know my poker order, but, um, and my, you know, playing cards order, but I just don't know how it goes with these things. But like the local ruling noblemen were in effect little kings in their place, in where they lived. Um, they had deep and abiding ties to their, their, subjects in effect, right? The people who lived in their areas and the people who lived in the, you know, the, essentially the governors of these parts of England, for all intents and purposes, the kings to their own locals. And because of this relationship between local nobles and the king, where they really had to share power and, and, and the king had to barter and bargain with nobles to be able to raise armies, because one of the reasons why 
the king was so weak is because England was an island. It didn't need standing armies. And without standing armies, kings can't impose their will on their own country. Um, they actually need to get you know, their bannermen, in effect, to go along with whatever they want. I know I'm blowing all of the heraldry kind of uh, lingo here, but forgive me for it. It's early. So out of that tension, you get these... You get this space, right, which is sort of where first, and you, uh, where civil society kind of can rise up. You know, you also have one of the reasons why civil society can rise up is that England always had these quirky um, customs about, you know, local autonomy, individual, you know, family autonomy, man's home is his castle. We talked about all this stuff before, so I don't want to belabor this for people who've heard me talk about it a million times. But, um, you know, the Magna Carta, which in some ways is just a really weird document, or as the Brits say, Magna Carta, because they don't use the the, because I guess they need to save energy for global warming or something. But um, Magna Carta is, is basically just this weird contract. I think there are like three versions of it, but it's written down and it kind of codifies this idea very early on that uh, the kings can be bound to text and bound to the will of subjects in a way that doesn't happen in other places, right? And we can go on about England. My point is to really talk about Russia. In Russia, however, it's just sort of the opposite. While England had these really defensible borders because it was an island, Russia really never had defensible borders. It's just this vast open landmass. And yeah, there are mountains, but the spaces between the mountains are more than wide enough to send, you know, Mongol or other hordes through. And, um, and so Russia in part becomes a land empire because it always feels like it's threatened at its borders. Um, and so it always feels like it has to invade whoever is on its periphery to secure its safety. But once it invades, it basically turns those people into Russians or turns that land into Russian, sort of like the way in, you know, is, you know, Islamic empires believe that once land is conquered, it's, it, it is officially Muslim. It can never stop being Muslim. Russia conquers places and thinks that it can never stop being, you know, part of czarist Russia. So that means the people, the border keeps expanding and whoever's on the other side of the border gets turned into a threat. And so there's always more threat at the borders, which means Russia has to keep expanding by its own logic. And so this is the settler colonialism of Russia that puts Israel, I would say it puts Israel to shame, except I don't believe that Israel really is settler colonial in the way that people use the term. And I think Russia is, and yet you don't hear the people bleeding about settler colonialism being the signature evil of the world talk, ever talking about Russia. It is, it's, it, is, it is not necessarily in every instance an anti-Semitic argument, but the way it is deployed is so selective as to make it appear that way from time to time and time again and again. But also because of the way Russia, you know, Russia had what they call Caesaropopism, where the, the czar, and czar is just a, a Russified version of, of Caesar, uh, much like Kaiser is a Germanized version of Caesar, because uh, the sort of the theological underpinnings of the czar make him also the head of um, the national religion, right? He's both Pope and Caesar. And you can, it's, it's funny, you can talk about how sort of the Protestant Reformation kind of was a backslide towards that a little bit in places like England where the king becomes the head of the church, but there are important theological differences there. There's also just important temporal differences about when that happened, right? Because when that happened, there's a, there's a, 
the, there's a real splintering of political and religious power in Europe. And, you know, you can't really talk about, anyway, that's a real side, that's a get into the weeds thing we can talk about another time. I'm just trying to say that I don't think Henry VIII was the equivalent of, of the czar theologically. Regardless, in Russia, not only was the the authoritarian ruler, the head of the church, it was also part of, you know, whether you want to call it theological doctrine or state doctrine or just whatever, the czar owned the whole country. All of the land belonged to the czar. It's not the way it worked with the king. It's not the way it worked with, you know, in most of Western Europe. And so basically local nobles were not like in England where they emerged organically over generations in part because you know most of those nobles families begin as local warlords but so be it the the various regional or local nobles governors whatever you want to call them were more like emissaries from the czar they were answerable up, were upwards not downwards they had no particular or necessary connect I mean I'm sure some did but basically you could be removed as the governor of a region, right? They're basically, sort of, in Game of Thrones terms, everyone was basically a warden of their region and you could be replaced by some other warden, some other, you know, lickspittal or favorite of the court um, and have no ties whatsoever to the region you were put in charge of. Sort of like in the Roman Empire, you know, they would send senators off to be governors of Greece or Macedonia for a while and they were just basically there to maintain order and extract rents. And that's how... The czar did it with his own country, is he basically sent out territorial governors. And so if, with that kind of system where you're only answerable upward and the people are only resources to the people who are, to the officials who are supposed to be in charge of it, you get a completely different kind of political and cultural evolution and you get very little civil society. Orlando Figgis in his really wonderful book, The Story of Russia, and I got to say, Mike Duncan's very long podcast, which is awesome, on uh, the Russian Revolution. They both get into this quite a bit. Um, but, you know, basically Russia only had like, depending on, and I wrote about this a while back, but it only had, you know, I can't remember the exact thing. You could, it was like either... 11 years of actual democracy, of any, of any parliamentary democracy, of any sort of formal kind, or maybe like 18 months. And it never really had civil society the way you had in England or Western Europe until very late in the 19th century. And then by, you know, the early 20th century, that all starts to come apart um, and you get the Bolshevik Revolution and, and all that. So there's just, there's been generation after generation after generation of very little social capital formation, very little muscle memory about civil society. Um, there is an instinctive in the culture uh, deferment to authority, um, a, a horrible fatalism, which is one of the things that makes Russian literature so good is like horrible winters and oppressive regimes and a fatalistic and tragic view of human nature makes for some good reading, um, but doesn't make for a good life. Anyway, so I was making a shorter version of this point to my friend Ron, and Ron later accused me in the week. I know we were, there are going to be gasps across the land when you hear what he said to me. He said, you know, the other night when you were talking about Russia, you sounded a lot like Demeist or Demeistra. Uh, this is true. He accused me of that. Now, uh, most of you 
pro if you're a normal person, you probably don't know who De Maestro was, um, although I've written about him a few times. He was a counter-enlightenment, reactionary, um, Catholic in France, brilliant guy. He's, his two most famous quotes are one, which is not relevant to here. Well, maybe it will be in a little bit, is people get the governments that they deserve. Um, and then the other one, which is, which is what Ron meant, was um, there's this famous line from Demeist where he says, where he's responding to the universal rights of man talk from the philosophes. He's like, look, I've heard of a Russian man. I've heard of a French man. I've heard of an English man. I've heard of a Hungarian man. I've even, thanks to Voltaire or Montesquieu or something like that, heard of Persian man. But I've never heard of this person, man. And what he's doing is, is rejecting the universality of, of humanity and saying that we are all creatures of particular identities. Ron had a point, but not necessarily a strong point, I think, um, insofar as uh, that line is often used to sort of start the clock on the concept of identity politics. I think a little unfairly. I mean, I've done it for sure. Um, I remember the first place I ran into it was from Todd Gitlin in a book 30-something years ago. Um, but it's been used by a gazillion people to sort of, it's, it's almost become, I try not to quote it that too much anymore because it's kind of become a cliche in egghead circles to quote it as like the sort of fons et origio of identity politics. And the reason why I don't necessarily buy it is that identity politics as we talk about it today, is much more essentialist than I think what Demeist was getting at. Oh, I'm, I'm open to correction on this. My only point is, is that there's nothing, my point about Russia is there's nothing to do with the biological nature of Russians. I've been pretty consistent on this for a while now. It's like if you took a Russian baby and brought him up in a healthy, happy home in France or America or whatever, you grow up to be French and there would be no, you know, you know, no legitimate way, no serious way of telling otherwise, right? And I have no problem with the sort of soft Demeistrian point that people are shaped by their cultures. And that was my response to Ron was just sort of like, look, if you believe that good, healthy, liberal institutions, conservative institutions, Western institutions, democratic institutions, uh, good, healthy norms and cultures can produce uh, a, a good and well-rounded and, and properly formed character of good people, then you have to think that bad institutions, corrupt institutions, weak institutions can create bad character. And again, I'm not saying that every single Russian is a person of bad character. I'm saying that in the aggregate, the character of Russia as a nation state is bad. And I could come up with more complicated and highfalutin words than bad to describe it. And I'm, I'm totally open to the point that it's not so much that it's essentially bad, but it's, it just has this massive cultural, political, and economic collective action problem. But that's sort of my point. You know, it's like the, the, the Soviets never managed to actually create new Soviet man, but they did create a different kind of individual than they would have if they had a liberal democratic regime. And, you know, the, the Soviet Union really intensified a lot of the selfishness and cynicism um, of sort of Russian culture. Uh, you know, you, you would 
I remember people writing about how, you know, if you go to Soviet housing projects, people's individual apartments might be quite tidy and pleasant, but the hallways were full of trash. Russia has a sort of cultural tragedy of the commons where whatever you can get away with, except, you know, whatever you can get away with, you know, and extract from the larger society, you're a sucker if you don't. And I think that works horizontally as well as vertically there. Uh, it's very much the, the, when I had that conversation with uh, uh, Kosar about um, Ed Banfield's book about a morally backward society um, in Italy, that was, that, that was Banfield's point about the Italians in this village, which was just that they were practitioners of uh, amoral familialism, which, which basically meant whatever I can get away with for my family is good, but I don't care if it's good to the eyes of um, anybody else or if it's, you know, um, bad for society writ large. You just, it's devil take the hindmost kind of thing. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So so call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Anyway, that was a much longer discursion than I should have gotten into, but it's a, not a bad setup for talking about what an unbelievable ass clown Tucker Carlson has been. I, I've passed the point of saying it pains me to say some of these things because I did, you know, used to be friends with the guy and I did used to like him and I still think he's very smart and very talented. And 
Uh, and now I think that his intelligence and his talent are part of the indictment to him because he has to know, either he has to know what he is doing is so friggin' intellectually dishonest and grotesque, um, or he's completely lost his moral compass and doesn't care that it's morally grotesque. He thinks it's more important to be anti-American and pro-authoritarian. And, and um, I just really, I, I, there's, there's no defense of what he's been doing in Russia. Uh, if, if he doesn't know how stupid his, you know, look at this amazing supermarket, you know, reports, um, and my gosh, the subways um, stuff is, is just factually, intellectually idiotic. Um, I don't know what he is paying staff for. I mean, Tucker's been, you know, he's been fired from every every cable television network. I mean, he was fired from CNN, fired from MSNBC, fired from Fox, and fired from PBS. But he knows how to run a TV show. He knows how to run staff. He also ran the Daily Caller. He worked at the Weekly Standard. He knows what, you know, producers are supposed to do and researchers are supposed to do to provide you with accurate facts when you speak to a camera. And he's choosing not to have anybody do that for him, and he's choosing not to do it for himself. There's no defense of this idea that Russians live better than Americans. It is spectacularly stupid. It's so stupid that the only explanation for it is that it's a deliberate lie. I don't know if it's, you know, I have friends who think, oh, it must be compromised. You know, the Russians got to him. I kind of doubt that. Um... I think he comes by this honestly in the sense that he knows what he's doing and he's doing it for free. But for all I know, he was happy to be a useful idiot um, for free. And now the situation's more complicated. I don't know. I mean, if I were Tucker, I could just do a whole bunch of, I'm just asking questions about whether he's in the pay of Vladimir Putin. But I just, I, I don't know. And I don't really care. I mean, it'd be interesting to know, but I don't really care. But you know, Russia, look, I mean, it's, I, I'm not going to dwell on it because so many people have written about it. Um, and it's also just so friggin' obvious. Russia's poorer than Mississippi, uh, which is our poorest state. It has a lower life expectancy than Mississippi. It has higher, you know, infant mortality rates than Mississippi. Something like half of, like something like for 60% of Russians, half their wages go to just buying food. And like here he is, like he's extolling how amazing Russian subways are, which I look like his dad, Dick Carlson, was a fantastic, fantastic anti-communist. He grew up with an anti-communist dad who was a lot like, I mean, there are important differences, but like, um, like my dad was an anti-communist. And there's just no way that Tucker can be celebrating Stalin's showcase subway system without some part of his memory knowing that he is doing exactly what Stalin wanted Western visitors to do when they saw the subway system. They wanted to have, you know, because the subway system was built in part as a propaganda tool. In fairness, it was a propaganda tool in part to convince Russians themselves that the future was going to look awesome in the Soviet Union and this is the kind of thing that they were building toward. But it was also this thing that they showed people from around the world to say, look how advanced Russia is. Look how far we've come. I mean, I, I, Bernie Sanders um, 
remember the controversy about Bernie Sanders going to the Soviet Union on his honeymoon and all that kind of stuff? Bernie Sanders, this is, there's a video out there. We can put it in the show notes um, of him talking about how advanced the Soviet Union is in 1980 because of the chandeliers in the Russian subway system. And I, I, I'm not going to spend my time looking for it, but I would be stunned if there isn't a video or something of Tucker mocking and laughing Bernie, at, at Bernie Sanders for talking about how great, you know, the Soviet Union was. And now he's just basically playing the same, he's playing the same useful idiot apologist game that yeah, Bernie Sanders to, you know, all the... You know, I can go back to from Joseph Davies and Walter Durante forward, you know, and it's it's so pathetic. I do want to say, though, you know, Dan McLaughlin had this line. Uh, my friend Dan McLaughlin, baseball crank um, at National Review, where he said, this may be Tucker's lowest moment yet. I'm not sure he has ever done anything so indefensibly auto discrediting. I agree it's auto discrediting. I do not think this is the most indefensible thing that Tucker has done. I mean, I, I still think the Patriot Purge stuff was more discrediting, more grotesque. Remember, that was the last straw for me to leave Fox was this just asking questions thing where he basically insinuates is too weak a word. He, he basically screams in a caveated way so that the lawyers couldn't necessarily get at him, that January 6th was a false flag operation, that they're going to set up an American Gitmo to put people like you in jail. And as much as I despise sucking up to evil autocratic regimes abroad and, and just the grotesqueness of Tucker's lies about Putin, um, lies about America, lies about defending Trump's attempt to steal an election, I just think as a moral thing, as a damage to your own country, are worse. Um, I'm not sure Dan would necessarily disagree with me, but I, could, I just I read that you know right before we started recording, and I wanted to um just get that out there. The other thing is, so I think Kevin Williamson, he should really read his piece on all this on the all this stuff. He makes a just really fantastic point, which I actually. Uh, highlighted as well. Um, he writes, the irony of the Putinism and near Putinism we see on the contemporary right, one of the ironies anyway, is that Moscow represents precisely what they believe, wrongly for the most part, Washington to be, an imperial city in which coddled, politically connected, decadent urban elite enrich themselves through official influence and off-the-books relationships while scouring the countryside for young men to recruit into their vicious wars of imperialism and conquest. I think that is exactly right. It is really kind of amazing. Um, this, in no one, you know, no uncertain terms, is is sort of the 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 core of. All of the BS you hear from J.D. Vance um, and Steve Bannon and all these people is the way they describe America is the way Moscow or the way they describe Washington, D.C. Um, is the way Moscow actually works, where it is. Um, it is. I mean, I, I can't really improve upon the point Kevin makes here, but it is. It is a place where it's all about being politically connected. It's all about uh, corrupt self-dealing, um, uh, utter contempt. You know, Putin has not conscripted young people from 
Moscow and St. Petersburg because he's terrified of the elites in Moscow and St. Petersburg turning on him. That was one of his lessons from Afghanistan is if you're going to send people off to the meat grinder to die, and that's another part of why I think Russia is a bad country, is its military doctrine throughout the Soviet years going back to the czarist years has been to use people, you know, uh, Russian soldiers as essentially... Um, targeting drones. Oh, we think there's a machine gun nest over there. Send 10 guys that way and see if they get shot, right? That's an evil regime that uses its soldiers that way. And so all these people, anyway, so he, he knows that using the children of oligarchs and near oligarchs and te television newscasters and that kind of stuff for that kind of military per project isn't worth the potential blowback you would get in terms of the potentiality of a coup. But sending people from, you know, you know, Kamchatka or, you know, Dagestan or whatever to go be chewed up in a war, he's got zero problem with. And, you know, and this is the thing that just infuriates me so much about the rhetoric from Vance and these people is not only are they apologists, and they are apologists for the, for the Russians, they're liars about America, and I made this point on, on the Dispatch podcast yesterday where I was, I think, more coherent than I am this morning. If you want to criticize NATO, fine. There are criticisms to be made about NATO. If you want to criticize supporting, helping the Ukrainians, fine. There are criticisms to be made. But if you have to lie, if you have to make up things in order to sound persuasive to voters then your objections can't be very, your real objections cannot be very strong. And so like the stuff with Nikki Haley saying that she, you know, is a warmonger who wants to send American boys uh, or American soldiers to go fight and die in Ukraine, it's a lie. I mean, you can say, I think she might want to do that or I don't trust her not to do that, but uh, which I think would be, dis, you know, dishonest or gross, but it would have... You know, it had more, uh, you, could, you could defend it better by just saying, look, it's my opinion. But they, these guys state as fact, Nikki Haley wants to do this, that this is her plan. And it's a straw man. And all over the place, it's straw men that these people use as their best arguments against policies. And if, if they had good arguments, if they had really good facts on their side, you'd hear it from them. But instead... Everywhere you look from these these people, it's it's made up stuff about how Ukraine, you know, Elon Musk just, you know, uh, signed on to some idiotic tweet, you know, the other day about how it's the Ukrainian soldiers that are fighting at gunpoint and they've been, you know, conscripted uh, against their will to fight. It's just not true. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's some report about some bad thing happening somewhere, but <laughs> the Ukrainians want to fight this war. It's, so it's funny is like what they often have to do is describe Ukraine the way Russia should be described, but they don't describe Russia that way. They describe Russia as this, you know, shining city on a hill when Russia is the country that's going around dragooning people to go fight. Russia is the country that is wildly wildly corrupt. I'm not saying there's no corruption in Ukraine, but, you know, there are credible reports. You know, I think Forbes thinks Putin may be the world's richest man. He's a kleptocrat. 
And you don't, you hear, you know, you hear about Zelensky as a kleptocrat constantly. Um, I haven't seen any persuasive evidence about it. But the people who are very upset about supporting, you know, the corrupt Ukrainian regime never have a problem with Putin's Ukrainian regime. And I think the answer from some of them, at least some of the honest ones, is, yeah, but we're not giving money to Russia. And, okay, if you're not condemning Russia, you don't really care that Russia is corrupt. And I thought, you know, what's weird is that from most of the people who are saying this stuff, like I've never, I should have MBD back, Michael Brennan Doherty back on, but, you know, I've heard him say many times, and, you know, I like Michael a lot, I respect Michael, I know he drive he can drive me nuts and he can drive some of my friends nuts, but I think he's a good egg. But he, you know, has deep intellectual and I think consistent animosity to a lot of quote unquote neoconservative arguments about promoting democracy and all these kinds of things. And yet when Michael or 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 less honest critics of and more ardent haters of you know, neoconservatism or democracy promotion or any of that kind of stuff, the more passionate realists, whenever they need to criticize Ukraine, the shelf they go to is the neocon shelf. They talk about how it's, you know, it's not free enough. It's not democratic enough as if these things matter to them. And yet when you say, well, we should be on the side of promoting democracy, they say, why? You know, like we're realists. We should just do what's in our national interest. Okay, but then if that's your standard, why is it against our national interest? Why, is the th- why are the criticisms that you come up with borrowing from the moral capital of the pro-democracy argument? And um, I just find it very sort of confusing. Um, I, I hope I didn't confuse it more. Well, it's, it's sort of it's sort of a stupid point when you think about it this way, but the biggest tell that someone is being dishonest is when they're dishonest. Uh, you know, Sarah's like, "Can't you make a strong argument that you know this just isn't our fight and we shouldn't care about it and all these kinds of things?" Um, and my point was, yes, but if the only bullet points you have to make your case are lies, it must not be a very strong point. Right. And this sort of gets to the NATO thing. I hear all the time, you know, again, Michael brought it up on the editor's podcast the other day um, about how, you know, we've paid 60 percent of the NATO expenditures since X year or something like that. You know, I, I don't want to put this entirely on Michael because I've heard it from other places, too, and I'm not exactly sure how he phrased it. But this is the gist of it is, if, you know, if you look back, we've carried this disproportionate burden of NATO defense expenditures. And um, that's unfair and that's unjust and that shows that we're getting a raw deal. The problem with that phrasing of it is that it is a more sophisticated way of making the same mistake that Donald Trump makes. You know, Donald Trump basically talks about NATO as if it is a um, either a country club where everyone has to pay dues and that, you know, we've been stuck with the tab for a lot of countries dues for a long time, which is not true. The actual budget of NATO qua NATO is like three and a half billion dollars or something like that. It's a very small, um, you know, sort of bureaucratic organizational budget. There's no NATO troops. There are no NATO tanks. There are no NATO planes. It doesn't work that way. You know, the planes belong to the individual countries. The tanks belong to the individual countries. And, and so when people talk about, you know, how we've carried a disproportionate burden of the, of the costs of NATO, what they're really saying is, is that our defense budgets have been bigger than other countries. And that's true. And I've long said, I think, you know, NATO should be spending more on NATO's, you know, on their, on their, on their defense budgets. 
Um, totally agree with that. No problem with that. But the truth is, is that if, if we had no allies, we'd be spending more on our military budget, not less. And while it's true that like we've carried a bigger part of the NATO burden over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, I don't know what the math is. This is all at a time when our defense spending has been shrinking, not growing. And so when people talk this way, they give the impression that somehow NATO has been this huge, you know, uh, suck on our, on our, you know, treasury. When in fact, the amount of money we spend on military and therefore the amount of money we spend on quote unquote NATO has been shrinking for the most part. You know, I mean, there have been occasional ups and downs with, you know, the defense bills. But for the most part, as a share of GDP, the amount we've been spending on the military has been shrinking for decades. And so it's just it's a, it's sort of a shell game rhetorical trick. The simple fact is, is that allies are amplifiers of power. Allies particularly in an organization like NATO, are just incredibly valuable militarily, diplomatically. And the idea that um, um, it's, you know, so like the one way Trump talks about it is it's, it's, a, it's a country club. The other way he talks about it is that it's a protection racket and that we've fallen down on the job of shaking down, you know, these NATO countries like they were like neighborhood grocers. And that's, you know, that's the way Trump talks about it in these quotes lately is, you know, nice little country you have there. Be shame if something happened to it. You better pay more protection money. That's what not, not what NATO is either. You don't have to, like, be super sophisticated about this. And you don't have to be a sort of, you know, pie-eyed multilateralist or UN stan to understand that it is fundamentally in America's national security interest to have allies. And I feel the same way about, you know, just supporting Ukraine. If the argument against supporting Ukraine was so good, why do, why do people have to lie about us spending more money, so much more money than Europeans? It's not true. Europeans in absolute terms and in his defense of GDP are spending more than America has. We haven't spent, and moreover, they're spending money that actually goes to Ukraine far more than we are. Most of the money, we just had Mackenzie England do a piece for us at the dispatch about, you know, the lion's share of the dollars that we spend on Ukraine aid stay in the United States. We send them the weapons and the bullets and the rockets, and then we buy new ones, you know, and replenish our stockpiles. Hopefully, you know, if, if we're sending more than we are making, that's a bad thing. But, you know, we really desperately need to build up our defense capacity in this country. Wall Street Journal just had this very dismaying piece about how basically China can really start churning out warships at an alarming rate. They're building up their navy incredibly fast. They're using, you know, the global shipbuilding market to augment their military shipbuilding programs. And we're just, you know, drying that stuff up, which is just long-term insane. If we got out of NATO... Unless we really did want to just become Fortress America, which would be unbelievably stupid. If, but we would have to spend more on our national defense, not less. NATO lets us project power um, beyond um, our own military. It gives us, it gives us huge leverage, right? Into like, it's like, like real leverage, like Archimedean leverage. And anyway, on the Ukraine stuff, like Russia is a long-term threat. 
Russia is, you know, a junior partner to China. There is in no way, shape, or form a argument that is remotely plausible that, like, China would be really upset if Russia won in Ukraine, that it would hurt China if we let Putin um, advance closer on NATO. There's just there, none of the, the talking points that you hear about blank check this and all that kind of stuff. It's all garbage. You know, if Mike Lee has good arguments to make, he should make them. And yet all I see from him is just trolling clickbait nonsense. And it really breaks my heart about Mike Lee because, I, you know, I used to have a lot of respect for the guy and I, I don't know what happened to him. You know, same thing with Ron Johnson and these guys and how these guys respond to Alexei Navalny's death, execution, murder, killing is going to say a lot. And I kind of fear it's not going to say anything good about these guys. But I hope I'm wrong about that. I really disliked on Morning Joe this morning that like the immediate story about this was how are, are how Republicans are going to be have a bad response. I mean, like at least let Republicans pounce before you start denouncing them for pouncing, even though I think, you know, you know, that those guys are right, that it's going to be bad. I just don't think this translating it into a, another cudgel against Republicans is not the first takeaway um, we should have at a moment like this. Oh, lastly, on the political stuff on it, you know, Biden has said that the ramifications for Russia would be, you know, severe or catastrophic or something like that if Navalny died. Uh, he's going to have a lot of pressure on him to, to back that up. I'll be kind of curious if he does. I probably talked about all this stuff way too much. Oh, but one last thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, it's been really, really bothering me. And that's what, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up the Kevin thing. You know, so, you know, Kevin makes this point about how, you know, Moscow is this incestuous, uh, you know, uh, de facto you know, monarchy, aristocracy, this corrupt regime of self-dealing, you know, and that's exactly what, you know, the most MAGA people, that's exactly how the most MAGA people describe the Biden regime and, um, and the corruption of the swamp and all that. And I just, it, it bothers me. I mean, the, the hypocrisy of, you know, a lot of the Trump boosterism is, I'm starting to build up enough scar tissue for it that I, I sometimes I can't muster the outrage. I think some of these things actually deserve, but the news that, Donald Trump wants to put his daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law Laura Trump, at the RNC is just so perfect, right? In 2016, I listened to a lot of people, a lot of people insist to me that um, the reason why Jeb Bush couldn't be the nominee is we've had enough of these political dynasties that you know, you know the the. Bushes and the Romneys and all this kind of stuff. And before that, the Kennedys. Um, that That's not how, you know, a, a, a constitutional republic is supposed to work. And there was always a certain amount of truth to that. I'm not a huge fan of political dynasties. I think the Bush family is a noble and decent family. But, um, you know, there are other families to draw, you know, people from. I think that one of the things that people don't understand about some of these political families is that they have a very deep and profound sense of public service. I mean, I think that's true of Romney's. I think that's true of Bush's. Um, but anyway, I'm not here to defend or, or denounce. It's a, also a totally defensible position to be against political family dynasties. Um, and that was the argument during the general election in 2016 is, you know, enough, you know, oh, now, you know, now, now Mrs. Clinton, it's, his, it's her turn, which I got to tell you was the dumbest friggin' bumper sticker 
um, slogan for a presidential candidate in my lifetime. I mean, make America great again, which Trump did not invent. It's a very old phrase, but he heard it and then he thought it was his and, and he gets mad whenever he hears anyone suggest somebody else came up with it. But make America great again, whatever analytical flaws I think it may have as a political slogan, it's a great slogan. It's one of the reasons Reagan used it from time to time. But it's her turn just was so redolent with asinine entitlement, um, unearned um, entitlement to political power that it, it really disgusted me. And regardless, so the point was like, oh, just, you put, can't put your relative in, can't have political dynasties, this is grotesque, we're a constitutional republic. And now Donald Trump, you know, who when he was campaigning was talking about putting his sister on the Supreme Court for no other reason than she's his sister. To her credit, her, his sister had no, a good deal of contempt for him, but and no one seemed to care about that, you know. And I remember, you know, Hugh Hewitt during the convention after after Ivana Trump spoke, I I just was disgusted by it. I think Hugh was just getting caught up in his partisanship stuff and wasn't. It was probably being tongue in cheek, but it was just a grotesque thing to say about how. You know, after eight years of Donald Trump, we can have eight years of Ivana. And he was talking about how what a great political dynasty that would be, the birth of a dynasty. And I was like, wait a second. I thought part of the argument for Trump was we need this outsider to break up dynasties, not, you know, anoint another line of another lineage of political authority and royalty. And now Donald Trump wants to put Laura, Tr Laura Trump at the RNC for Basically, according to the reporting I've seen, probably for no other reason than to give Trump access to more funds um, and get the RNC to pay his legal bills again. And she's going around saying the sole job of the RNC is to get Donald Trump elected, and that's how she would see it. That is not the sole job of political parties, is to get one candidate elected. Um, and we're not going to do my weak parties, you know, shtick here. But it's just it just shows you how uh, pretextual and instrumentalist, so many of the arguments for Trump always reveal themselves to be, that these are always the nearest weapon to hand defenses at a particular moment, at a particular time, and the, the impulse towards consistency of any time uh, evaporates with the, you know, the expediency of the moment. And um, there's no... There's no co coherent intellectual principled philosophical case for Trumpism. It's a psychological phenomenon, cult of personality thing. And I guess this is a good point to talk about. I know some people in the comments had said they hoped I was going to talk about it. And I realize I've already talked for almost 59 minutes um, without talking about it. So I should bring it up at least briefly. My conversation with... Uh, uh, the Lewis brothers about the myth of left and right. I think I'm going to write about that today. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm going to write about it today because it's in my head and I got a busy day and got to drive two hours to Orlando. So I'm not going to preview a lot of it here. But um, I got to say the argument has a, had a bigger effect on me than I anticipated. I haven't read the whole book. I've been, read big chunks of the book listen to those guys on a couple podcasts. And again, I had an hour plus conversation with them and I've read a lot of reviews of it. And, and anyway, I'm almost done with the book, but my point is, is like, I get the argument. I think they make it, as I said in our conversation, 
I think they, for all their talk about how they hate intellectual or analytical monism, you know, which is my big bugaboo since the earliest days of this podcast has been about I hate monocausal explanations for things. Um, they fall into this trap of offering a monocausal explanation. And, and I think they would be more persuasive. I like both of them a great deal, I got to say. And I learned things from the book that I'm, I'm grateful for. And, and I'm grateful for the fact, you know, there are a lot of these egghead books that, you know, I'm interested in that I like a lot, but by the next week when I'm doing different podcasts, the book is out of my head. You know, I'm not still like noodling it and thinking about it. And, you know, I was noodling and thinking about this on vacation, um, sometimes literally with like a noodle in the ocean. Um, and uh, so anyway, I, I think if they had made a softer case, it would be more persuasive and more accurate. And I think I elucidated a lot of that at least, at least I think I made myself clear, I hope I did, that that's my view of it when we were talking. Um, but I also think the criticisms from some people are wrong, right? Because the, the, the absolute rejection of the argument is kind of a monocausal argument too, or can be. And for instance... Quite a few people have said to me, there's nothing wrong with having this dualistic approach to politics in a two-party system. And I'm totally on, or I shouldn't say totally, I'm mostly on, largely, essentially, on uh, the Lewis Brothers' side on this um, question. Just because you have a two-party system doesn't mean that you have to divide everything into left and right. And that's part of their point is if you go back in time, if you have a sort of basic understanding of what left and right mean in the conventional sense, the dictionary sense, right, you know, whatever the sort of vernacular understanding of left and right, you know, left cares more about equality, right cares more about merit, left cares more about a robust welfare social safety net, right cares more about free markets, right, you can go to all that stuff. There are times and places where the two parties were orthogonal or diagonal or whatever the right word is to the left-right thing, where the Republican Party was left on some issues and right on other issues, where the Democratic Party was left on some issues and right on other issues. There's no reason why in a two-party system the two parties need to line up perfectly left-right. And for most of the 19th century, I mean, again, this is a big part of their point, and I agree with it. Most of the 19th century, it's one of the reasons why 19th century history, political history, really requires you to sort of, you know, sh you know, you know uh, throw cold water on your face and shake your head and get a lot of the 21st century and 20th century categories out of your head because they didn't talk about left and right in the 19th century um, very much. And to the extent those kinds of categories fit in, they certainly didn't apply neatly to Republicans, Democrats. It used to be that the parties were more coalitions of various interests. And so you could say it was more like cities versus farmers, you know, that's, but that's not necessarily a left, right thing. Um, cause the farmers were poorer than the cities. Right. So, I mean, like who's, who's more egalitarian and who's, you know, more class obsessed the, the, the farmers or the, or the city folk, you know, there, there are a bunch of different ways you can look at this stuff without falling into the left, right thing. And so where I agree with 
the Lewis brothers and disagree with the critics is that reducing everything to left, right makes it sound like the parties are perfectly ideologically opposite from each other. And that therefore voting Democrat means you are ideologically all one way and voting Republican, you're all another way. That sort of thinking is one of the things that's really wrong with the country right now, you know, because if, and, and, and there's obvious truth to their point, maybe not as, as black and white, clear, crystal clear, sweeping away all other variables and caveats and assumptions truth, but I think directionally they're right about this, that people are on the right or the left because they want to join, a, be part of a group first and the ideas come second. Now, I don't think it, again, I don't think it is as stark and crystal clear. I think there are elements of, of you know, they're, they're against the essential, what they call the essentialist notion of, of ideology, that people are right wing and therefore they are on the right. And he says instead um, that people join these groups and then adopt these positions because they want to be part of the in, they want to be in the group. I think it's, it's, it's both and not either or, and at different times it's, you could say it's more one or more the other, but I think you can't discount, you don't have to agree hundred percent with their point, but you also can't reject their point hundred percent either. Um, it's a mix. If you look at the way the GOP and the conservative movement is constructed right now for a lot of people. I mean, we just saw this Matt Rosendale guy drop, this Matt Rosendale guy drop out of a Senate race um, a week after announcing he's going to run simply because he didn't get Donald Trump's endorsement. Now, and the the stuff in the post in the New York Times, I can't remember where I was reading it, um, it basically says that, you know, in his state, you can't, you can't win a primary without Donald Trump's endorsement. Well, what does that say, you know, if, 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 if left and right are perfectly aligned with whatever the Republican Party and Democratic Party believe in, that means that the only issue that matters in, was it Montana? I, I think it's Montana. Um, but it could be Wyoming. It could be, uh, could be a, maybe it is Wyoming. Anyway, it could be a bunch of different states. The only issue that matters is one guy's personal opinion which is not formed by ideological considerations. Donald Trump doesn't care about your ideology. He cares about your loyalty. And so we're going to say that what defines a conservative isn't your view on abortion or guns or taxes or the role of the state or the, the binding power of the Constitution or the importance of traditional values. We're not going to say it's any of those things. We're going to say what qualifies you as a conservative or what qualifies you as a, a person of the right is entirely based upon um, Donald Trump's opinion? Well, that's batshit crazy. That's just bonkers. And that's, I mean, again, I know there are objections to that, fra that framing just now, but I don't think a reasonable person can claim that that kind of dynamic is not very strong on the right right now. And if, you know, if that's the case, then, then, then conservative or, or progressive or liberal or whatever labels we're supposed to use, they can't mean very much if, you know, if being a passionate Republican is synonymous with being a passionate right winger then, and 
the test of being a good Republican is purely based on loyalty and subservience to Donald Trump, then being on the right doesn't mean very much because it's certainly not an issue. It's not an issue driven thing. And I think they're, they're, they're right about it. And you can, you know, you can do this. This is not, it doesn't, this, this story does not begin with Donald Trump. I mean, I've written, I mean, that's one of the weird things about why this book has stuck with me is that, uh, some of you may recall, I've written a lot about conservatism over the last 25 years. And, um, and I keep trying to think, okay, does this actually fundamentally knock the legs out of any of the arguments I've been making over the last 25 years? And I've struggled to come up with um, places where it actually has. Um, what it, where, what it has done is sort of expose, I think, a potential. Well, it's, I should probably just write about this rather than talk about it because it gets complicated. But uh, apologies if I end up repeating myself um, in the G file. But here's an example. So Jacob Heilbrunn has a book coming out about, uh, I think the title is America Last, uh, The American Rights Century-Long Love Affair with Dictators. I haven't read the book yet. I got the press release. Um, I've had my profound disagreements with Heilbrunn over the years. Um, um, and so maybe he anticipates my reaction to it, but reading the press release and looking at the book on the web, I got a review copy sent. Um, I'm sure it's home by now. My initial reaction, which would have been my reaction 20 years ago at National Review, is okay, but what about the left century-long addiction to or uh, love affair with uh, dictators? In other words, I've been making these, you know, like, so like, you can talk to me about how bad America's fondness for, I don't know, Chiang Kai-shek or, you know, the Kaiser or whoever was, you know, and I, I'm not sure whether he nails those arguments or not. But to be sure, America had, uh, the American right defended some, you know, some dictators, you know, Pinochet, okay, you know, that kind of stuff. Fine. Stipulated. But if all you're doing is calling out the this stuff on the right, you're implying that this stuff doesn't happen on the left. And this is like, uh, this is like one of the major themes in my writing. I've been thinking about this a lot last 25 years is pushing back on the idea that, that all the bad things in American history are right wing things, right? There's a huge part of, you know, liberal fascism. It's a huge part of my stuff from national review going back to the early two thousands about isolationism. You know, there's this, you know, you know, this argument that Frank Foer and countless other liberals have made is that, you know, American, that, uh, that isolationism is a right-wing phenomenon and that it is, um, um, and that it's in the DNA of the right. And that's just nonsense. I mean, it's in the DNA of the right, but it's also in the DNA of the left. Um, the left has a rich, rich history of isolationism, you know, from Come Home America during Vietnam, um, you know, William Fulbright, you can go down a long list, of, you know, certainly the Iraq War, you know, and we can get into an argument about whether the right term is isolationism, because I don't think America's ever actually been really isolationist, but that's a conversation for another day. But this idea that we should retrench from the world manifests itself on the left and right all the time, right? Similarly, do not tell me that the right has a, you know, 
unique infatuation problem with dictators. I mean, have you ever talked to a lefty about Castro? At least talk to a lefty about Castro in the 1980s or talk to a lefty about Daniel Ortega in the 1980s or talked about Hugo Chavez in the, you know, the early 2000s. You know, don't get me started on, on <laughs> Stalin and, you know, or, or you can go down a long list. I mean, the idea that somehow uh, infatuation with authoritarian or totalitarian regimes is a uniquely right wing thing is, you know, it's the, it's, it's, it's like the comedian thing, which I always talk about, about how, you know, people, I can't remember who the comedian I first heard make the point, but it was, you know, it's true. Black people love fried chicken. You know who else loves fried chicken? Everyone else. And so I've been making a lot of these kinds of arguments for a very long time. The paranoid style in American politics is not a right-wing thing. It is an American thing. And there's as much evidence of the paranoid style on the left, if not more, than there is on the right. But we always, if you're only looking under the, on the, under the street light, because that's where the light is good at right-wingers, you're going you're gonna to leave the impression that a lot of these problems are right-wing problems when they're in fact American problems or they're human problems, right? They're inherent to the human condition and they manifest themselves across the ideological spectrum in different ways and at different times. And so I've been making that point for a very, 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 very long time. And I could probably list, you know, if give me a half hour of Googling 50 articles that have made this point in one way or the other. And so when I've been thinking about the Lewis book, the Lewis and Lewis book, it's, I'm like, okay, but am I guilty of the same thing? Have I gone and said the left is uniquely guilty of this or that. And I'm sure I have. I'm just hard-pressed to think of really good examples of it, with the exception of things where it's not that the, I'm, I'm exempting the right from these problems. It's where there are the institutions that I'm criticizing have no right-wingers in them. And so, like, if I'm going to talk about the mess in universities, which have basically been denuded of traditionalists and conservatives, it's fine to talk about how campuses are left-wing, right? That, you know, America has a problem with left-wing or progressive or woke, or whatever you want to call it, higher education. I think that is a true observation. You know, there are exceptions, there are caveats. It's, you know, you can overstate it. That's all fine. Uh, as a generality, I think that's objectively true. And I think the response to October 7th kind of, you know, took the mask off on a lot of that kind of stuff. I don't think that me pointing that out absolves, exonerates the right from that problem. I think the right doesn't have that problem because the right controls so little of higher education that you really have to be talking about anecdotal stuff. I mean, Liberty University, okay, I'm sure it's got all sorts of problems, and I've pointed out some of them. Hillsdale, you know, I taught a class there 10 years ago. I have huge problems with, with Hillsdale's public face. I still have friends in and around Hillsdale world. I have lots of friends who are graduates of Hillsdale. But when I visited Hillsdale, you know, the disconnect between what you would think Hillsdale is like, given its profile in Washington and on cable news, and what the actual academic institution are like are very different. And I don't think it has, at least I didn't see a lot of evidence that it has the right-wing version of the left-wing problem with higher education. But it's also incredibly stupid to talk about these two things as if there's parity. You know, you can take, what, Grove City, great school, Hillsdale, I don't know, Wabash College, I mean, Liberty University, I'm kind of running out of examples of, of non-left institutions. You can stack them all up and it'd be kind of silly to do a both sidesism thing between 
the role of the left in higher education and the role of the right in higher education. So I don't think I'm guilty there. Same thing with liberal media bias. Lord knows I have criticized conservative media. Now that conservative media has the kind of influence that it has. But I think most of my writing about liberal media bias was pretty fair and accurate because what we're talking about is, is the commanding heights of, of the media, which are still controlled by the left of center. Doesn't make them all bad, doesn't make them all wrong, doesn't make them all liars. It doesn't mean that all of the paranoid crap that you hear from you know, a lot of people on the right about the media is fair or accurate or persuasive. But nor does it mean that I'm wrong when I say there's a liberal media bias problem. Anyway, so anyway, it's been a really interesting tool for me to sort of do a personal inventory to see, okay, let's just assume they're 100% right, or not even 100% right. Let's just assume they're right, you know. Maybe they overstate the case in places and all the rest. What does that do to my own writing and my own positions? And so far, I feel, given how it's changed my views of these things, I really worried, oh, crap, am I going to have to revisit a whole bunch of stuff? And as I've been thinking about it, I really haven't thought of anything that I've written that really kind of like, okay, if the Lewis brothers are right, I must have been wrong about X. I'm sure if the Lewis brothers are entirely right, there have been sentences and paragraphs and maybe the occasional column that's wrong, um, but not anything like my core stuff. And, you know, and this was my defense against their criticism of liberal fascism, you know, which they call, you know, they, they objected to my quote unquote personal definitions of, of conservatism or personal definitions of ideology. And my view of that is, is that, no, I'm defining my terms. I'm saying this is what I mean by conservatism. This is what I mean by liberalism. This is what I mean by identitarianism. I just think they're wrong about, I mean, I can't speak to every example they use of personal definitions. Maybe some people are... Uh, being disingenuous, but I, I know why I make why I make the arguments I make, and I don't think anything has been sort of fatally undermined. Um, I don't know if you guys care about that, but it's just what's been in my head, and I will probably write about it more. I am very curious to see how this Navalny stuff plays out. Um, I'm very nervous; it's going to play out badly. Um, one last point on the Ukraine stuff, which I should have said at the top, because it's deeply related to all the lying stuff. If not only is it true that if these people had good arguments and good facts on their side, they wouldn't have to make up facts, right? They wouldn't have to lie. But, you know, inherent to the concept of lying is that you know what the truth is, right? It's the George Costanza, it's not a lie if you believe it you know, rule notwithstanding, which is sort of also a Trump rule. If you're lying, you know what the truth is, or which I do think there is some possibility that a lot of, that some people are just transmitters of lies they've heard and not bothered to get at the truth. And so maybe people like Mike Lee and Ron Johnson uh, have really bad advisors or they, they're put or friggin' Tuberville, um, um, maybe they're listening to bad people, bad journalists, bad sources, bad advisors, whatever, and they're sincerely believing the lies, and then they're just repeating them. I don't think it's that good a, uh, that, that impressive an exoneration of them, because senators who have the power, you know, to, under the Constitution to send people to go fight and die and have a fiduciary you know, fundamental obligation to get the policy right on, particularly on 
huge issues of national security, if they do not have the systems or the discipline in place to distinguish bald-faced lies from the truth, then they shouldn't be senators. Um, that they have no business being in public life. If they're going to sort of listen to friggin', I don't know, Benny Johnson or something, or Tucker Carlson and take Tucker Carlson at face value, then they should not be senators. They should not be members of Congress. They should have no role in running our country. And or I shouldn't say running our country. I hate that phrase, running our government. So, but that's the only other way to exculpate them from the charge of lying themselves. A couple people have now said to me who know this, what the real state of things on the Hill is that if the vote were for this aid package, and some people have said if the vote for the previous deal were the border security in, you know, in exchange for the aid to Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan, if it was a secret ballot or if everyone could have a free vote without all the political considerations, if they could just vote their consciences and their actual views, all of these things would pass easily. And that tells you, I mean, like, and look, this is, this is not a new thing in, in democracy and, and having secret votes, as many downsides as that does upsides when you have, you know, this is one of the great things that Nikki Haley did was getting rid of a, a practice in the South Carolina legislature where things were done by, like, I think it was voice vote where the vote wasn't recorded. So there was no evidence that these guys voted, you know, all the self-dealing stuff for them and their cronies. Transparency about the decisions politicians make has real value. I'm for that kind of transparency. I'm against transparency of negotiations and deliberations because I think you get government to work better when people can speak freely with each other, and then you hold them accountable to how they actually vote. I mean, people have heard me talk about this a lot of times, but like, I think it would be horrendous to put, just as an illustration of the point, cameras inside the chambers of the Supreme Court, right? So when they go back to deliberate and discuss the merits of the, the case, putting cameras on that would be indefensibly stupid. There's much to recommend that when they come out of chambers and they cast their votes on a decision that we should know how they voted. Now, I understand in some specific kinds of cases, a per curiam kind of whatever, you know, go talk to AO about all that. You don't know how they voted, but they're rare. In actual major cases that they decide, you know how they vote. I am not, my point is I'm not advocating that Congress do all of its votes in secret. But if what I've been told, and I've been told by a lot of people on different sides of this, is true, that if people could vote freely without worrying about Donald Trump, without worrying about what Laura Ingram or, or Tucker Carlson um, or Jesse Waters or Benny Johnson or any of these people would say, um, and they could just vote what they think is the right policy, they would vote differently than they're doing. I think, you know, Mike Johnson would like to pass all of this stuff, but he doesn't think he can because it's a very small majority and, and Donald Trump doesn't want him to. And, I, and so, anyway, uh, the point is here is that this is an important, you know, this is an important backside of the, the facade that most people are seeing. The lies are covering up, are protecting politicians from doing what they think is right. Because they don't, and they because they don't have good arguments, 
Um, they don't have truthful arguments to defend what they're doing. They need these lies to justify not doing the right thing. And I think that's something really important. Like if you're believing the kayfabe, um, you know, pro wrestling talk from, you know, the, the, the hallways of Congress, like it's the, the hallways at a WWE match, you're being duped. Because this is not, you know, this is like, this is my point forever about Donald Trump. You know, you talk to Republicans off camera, a lot of them, fewer and fewer, because the ones with consciences like Mike Gallagher are leaving Congress. But people like, you know, Lindsey Graham, well, I don't know about Lindsey Graham. Um, Lindsey Graham's got his own problems. But I don't, I, I don't want to start naming names of people I've actually talked to who've said one thing or another because the conversations were uh, not on the record. But trust me, I've talked to a lot of Member, Republican members of Congress that you've heard of and I, in Congress in both the Senate and the House who I know don't believe the stuff that they're saying about Donald Trump on TV. Same thing with a lot of these journalists or quote-unquote journalists, um, talking heads, pundits, whatever. And I think, you know, a lot of them have come to convince themselves of a lot of these lies, which is the danger in telling lies all the time is that you don't feel comfortable lying all the time. And so you start to convince yourself that the lies are the truth or that the lies aren't important lies. They're, you know, entertaining sort of embellishments and that you've kept your moral compass. And that's what happens is in fact that your moral compass um, breaks down if you just traffic in lies all the time. I just thought that was an important aspect to it. I really wanted to talk about Jeff Blahar's really infuriating piece about what's going on in Chicago with the, um, you know, this technology that lets, you, lets the police triangulate where gunshots are. I can't remember what it's called. It's like shot spot, spot shot, something like that. It's effective. It works. It's not perfect, but it works. And it lets police respond to shooting much more rapidly. And uh, the mayor of Chicago is getting rid of it. Um because it's essentially disproportionately helping catch people who illegally use guns. And in Chicago, those people are disproportionately black males and they don't want to have aid and abet the carceral state and all this stuff. And, and it's so unbelievably morally grotesque. I, I, I tried looking around for like the good argument for why you would get rid of this system. And there isn't one that I could find. Someone send me the good argument for it, please. I'm very curious to know. Um, but the thing that is really astounding about this is that, you know, this technology helps you not, not well enough because lots of people, lots of innocent bystanders and young teenagers who are stupidly caught up in the cycle of gun violence are getting murdered and getting killed. And you should be, if you have any confidence in the role of the state, and what it's actually supposed to do, um, any firm conviction about, you know, any of the, what, what government is there for. You should think the government is there for to stop people from murdering each other, regardless of whether they're white or black, regardless of whether it puts more young black men in prison. Uh, look, uh, we could run prisons better. I'm totally open to that. But you should, there is no principled objection to putting young black men in prison if they murder people. Now, how long they should be in prison, what prison is like, how much you put into rehabilitation, these are all perfectly reasonable things to debate. But it is not reasonable in any way, shape, or form to take away a tool that lets you, that makes it marginally 
easier, marginally less difficult to catch murderers. And that's what the mayor of Chicago is doing. But, and this is the thing that's so gobsmacking that Jeff Blehar at National Review points out, Johnson's not getting rid of it now. He's going to wait until after the Democratic convention to do it. And as Jeff points out with utterly deserved righteous indignation, this is grotesque, right? This is because shootings would be a problem politically for Democrats and heaven forfend a Democratic delegate from out of Chicago gets murdered. So we'll keep this system, which helps, again, it's not perfect, but it helps maintain the minimal level of social order of any decent society, which is helps catch and prevent murderers. And they're going to keep it just through September and then they'll get rid of it because they don't want people getting, they don't want the, the story of the Democratic convention marred by either out-of-towners getting murdered or putting a spotlight on urban crime, which because Democrats control every major city in the country for a very long time, is fundamentally a Democratic political problem rather than a Republican one. The cynicism of that is breathtaking. Now, maybe Jeff got it wrong. I actually don't know Jeff personally. He's, you know, been in NR periphery for a very long time, and now he's more central to it. I think he's great. Um, we've, you know, we've communicated over Twitter and stuff. I have no reason to think he is at all wrong about all this, and I found no evidence that he's wrong. But if he's wrong, I'd be like, I'd be, I just find it so morally repugnant. It's breathtaking to me. The idea that somehow you know this thing works and so, therefore, you need to keep it through the Democratic convention, but then you're going to get rid of it because after the Democratic convention, the only people who will be killed are the lumpen proletariat members of your own city. It's just mind-blowing. Anyway, all right, so I said I wanted to get into it. I actually just did. Apologies for extending this even further. Hopefully, travel goes well. I'm home tonight. I'm alone for a little while because my wife had to go to do a family thing, and uh, um, but I will be with my... Um, my fur creatures, which I'm very excited about. Um, thank you for cutting me some slack while I was on vacation. I hope Chris Starwald, who was supposed to sub for me, did. A, I know he did a great job. I hope it went well. I haven't seen if he actually did it or what the podcast is, but I like to think that someone would notify me if that was the case and um, if it didn't happen. And um, that's all I got, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>